Well, like you said, my name is Sawyer. I'm an intern here. It is indeed my last night. I'm super sad about that. I got fired, so just kidding. That's a joke. <laughs> Didn't get fired. That'd be crazy. But um, so yeah, but I'm, ex- I'm super excited to spend it with you guys. So we introduce the hero to the story of God, which is who? Jesus, yes. A few of us knew that, yes. Is indeed Jesus our Savior. And last week, Todd talked a little bit about Jesus' character. Um, we took a look at Philippians 2, which is basically Paul writing about how, although Jesus was literally God in the flesh, um, he came to serve. He, he served the lowest of the low in society and was humble at every waking moment. So last week we talked about Jesus came in humility, and this week we're going to be talking about how Jesus came to rescue. Um, he came to forgive us of our sin. Bible, I think they're going to be up on the screens. So, all right. Um, if you're a little bit shaky on where um, things are in your Bible, Luke is in the New Testament. It's one of the four Gospels, and it was written by Luke. So, to kind of get a, some context of um, what we're going to be talking about here, the first two verses, um, Jesus, Jesus tells us who he's talking to in these moments. Um, so, let's go ahead. Let's read verse 1. Is it up there? We're good. All right. Um, so, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. This man receives sinners and eats with them. So if you've grown up in the church, um, you've heard a lot about these tax collectors um, all throughout the Bible. So something I've always wondered, or I wondered when I was younger, was what made these tax collectors so bad? What, what deemed them some of the worst in society? What, what put them in the same group as, as prostitutes and adulterers and, and murderers? Um, I've always, I always wondered what, what made these people such bad sinners? Um, so, so to start off, they, they actually worked for the Roman Empire. All right, And what tax collectors would do, so they, they could go up to any man or woman, um, and they could basically tax them for all that they were worth. So the tax collectors would, would overcharge large sums of money and pocket the rest. So say the tax is maybe $20. So the, these tax collectors would tax people $30 and then pocket the rest of that $10. So they were, they were pretty greedy. So they were also Jewish. Um, so that made, them, that made them be seen as traitors because they were working for the Roman Empire. And, and Matt Chandler, he kind of gives an analogy that kind of helps us um, view how um, the, the tax collectors were seen as, as such terrible sinners in that society. So imagine this. So imagine a foreign country invades the U.S., all right? And this foreign country is killing and raping and overall just wrecking havoc on our country. But then some of our own citizens decide to join um, that foreign country's side and become a tax collector, so these people that were once our fellow U.S. citizens, what maybe our neighbors or anything like that, um, would literally be taxing us at random on top of all the death and rape and evil that's going on around us. So we would probably view them as complete traitors, right? Well, that's exactly um, what they were. they were. They were viewed as traitors because they worked for the Roman Empire while they were really Jewish. So they were looked at tra- as traitors because they joined the enemy, basically. So now that we have an idea of, of who Jesus is hanging out with, we see why the Pharisees and scribes were angry that Jesus was not only choosing to fellowship with these people, but he was, choosing, he was eagerly seeking and awaiting them. To be a Pharisee, so get this, to be a Pharisee or scribe, you had to have the first five books of the Bible completely memorized, so the whole Torah. And the first five books are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And I'm just curious, you can raise your hand, does anyone have that achieved yet? Does anyone have every, the first five books of the Bible memorized? All right, nobody. 
So I thought, so, all right, what about, what about this? What about just the, the book of Deuteronomy or Numbers? Has anyone read all the way through those books? Nobody. So, so these guys are pretty legit. Um, and you may be asking, what's so bad about these dudes? They got the first five books of the Bible memorized. They got the whole Torah. They got to be having some insane quiet time. They're practicing righteousness. I mean, that sounds like some kingdom work. But here's the problem. In the midst of all the knowledge that they had attained, they didn't understand the grace or forgiveness or what Jesus came to do. They're basically just following a rule book and and judging anyone that fell short of that. They had a heart problem. So what Jesus is about to do in in chapter 15 of Luke is tell them three parables. So in these three parables, Jesus is going to show them God's heart for his broken and fallen children, but also try to humble the pride of the Pharisees. A parable is an illustration or a story that is designed to teach a lesson. So in each of these parables, all three of them have one meaning behind them that Jesus is trying to get across to the Pharisees and the scribes and also the readers, which is us. So we're just going to dive right into the first parable. So we're going to um, read verses 3 through through 7, the parable of the lost sheep. So here we go. You can follow along. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after that one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. All right, so we see Jesus painting a picture of a shepherd going after his lost sheep. And all throughout the Bible, there's this strong comparison between God and a shepherd. Shepherd and sheep are actually mentioned over 500 times in the Bible, more than any other animal. So a few verses. John 10, 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. John 10, 14 through 15 says, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. All right, and that's actually a pretty beautiful. Right, here we go. Here we go. So it's actually a pretty beautiful depiction if we really think about it, because what exactly does a shepherd do for his flock of sheep? So he knows each and every one of his sheep by name. He cares for the sheep and loves them. He guides the sheep and he protects them. And all these are characteristics of our heavenly Father as well. So God loves us in such a way that it's unfathomable. He has a plan for each and every one of our lives, and he is our protector. And it sounds kind of basic, but, but as Christians, we sometimes forget that those are characteristics of our Savior. So overall, the parable of the lost sheep is about Jesus coming after us no matter what, showing that his undenying love and grace for us has no boundaries. Paint the picture of how as believers we become lost in our sin, but Jesus still relentlessly chases after us. And once he does have us, he not only rejoices, but he literally throws a party for us. Because he so deeply delights in saving us from ourselves. He leaves the 99 for the one. All right, so now we're going to look at the second parable of this trilogy. So the parable of the lost coin. And like I said before, um, just try to focus on how all these three parables focus on the same message. So we're going to read verses 8 and 9. I believe they're going to be up on the screens. The parable of the lost coin. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, 
for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. All right, so once again, this with the second parable, just like the first one, we get a picture of God's heart. We have a woman that has 10 silver coins. She loses one coin, but she sweeps all throughout the house diligently and finally finds that coin that was lost. And just like the lost sheep, once she finds the coin, she not only celebrates it, but invites all of, over all the neighbors and throws a party. And this parable, once again, just shows us God's delight in saving us. And I love how in verse 10 it says, even the angels rejoice when a lost sinner repents. When we finally come to the end, end of ourselves and realize that a sinful lifestyle just does not compare to God's plan for our lives, and we finally repent, God and his angels throw a party for us in heaven. All right, so now we've gone through the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and now we're going to go through the parable of the prodigal son. So this parable is a, it's a little bit longer, and we'll go more in depth with this one. So we're going to read verses 11 through 24, the parable of the prodigal son. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself to one of the citizens of the country who sent him to feed pigs in the field. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you in, in heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be your son. But the father said to his servant, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So that's a lot. I'm going to try to do my best to unpack what we just read. So um, the first question you might be asking is, is why would this father let the son have the inheritance? I mean, usually in culture, it's seen as, as the father passes away and then the son's get the inheritance after he's already passed away. So we, right off the bat, we kind of we see this, this younger son is disrespectful. Um, so, and you, you might be asking, why, why would this happen? Like, why would he go ahead and give him the inheritance just on command? So um, we, we can look at Romans chapter 1, verse 28 real quick and maybe get um, a depiction of why Jesus chose to start the story like this. So Romans chapter 1, verse 28 says, And since they did not see... To fit, acknowledge God. God gave them up to, de- to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. So kind of like a translation of this was like, God's like, okay, you can go do whatever you want. Um, but when you realize that I am what you need and not this, this other thing, um, then you'll realize you need to lean on me. So sometimes God lets us do what we want to tire ourselves out um, for us to realize that we need to lean on him, that we can't do it on our own. 
All right, so now we're going to look at verses 13 through 16 once again. So here we go. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. All right, so we see this, this younger son takes his inheritance, moves to a faraway country, um, spins loosely, squanders his property, lives recklessly, and then he, he goes broke because he spent all his money. And, and then on top of that, a severe famine arises in the country that he goes to. So, he, so he's broke, he needs a job, so he hires himself out to one of the citizens of that country that he's in, and this citizen sends him to, eat, eat, to, to, feed, to feed the pigs, and then we see in verse 16, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate from. So this is exactly what happens when we try to find fulfillment and things outside of a relationship with Jesus. Maybe it's that girlfriend or boyfriend, that team or sport, partying, that college, or, or maybe that career. The list goes on, but every time, without fail, these things leave us empty. And we, we, we just can't find worth in anything besides our Creator. These things that we put our happiness into aren't eternal, but Jesus is. So just a little story. Back in early high school, ninth and 10th grade, I struggled with that same thing. Um, I, I was putting my fulfillment into something that, that had no eternal value. So in ninth grade, I ended up making the ninth grade easy because... I wasn't even all that great, and I, I didn't get much playing time at all. I was, I was riding the pine, like, 24-7 pretty much. But um, it was almost like I thought that th- just the thought of being on the team and that, that being what people associated me with was the thing that got me. Um, but all that came quickly crashing down when I actually didn't make the team in 11th grade. Um, and I, So I had basketball up on this totem pole. J- just, that was basically, like, the God that I worshipped, and my relationship with Jesus fell somewhere down here. Um, and even though it sounds silly, and I know a lot of you are like, bro, it's just a sport, like it's not that deep, but I remember it literally broke my heart, and I remember asking God, like, how could he let this happen? How could you let me not make the team? Like, this is, this is my everything. Um, and no, I'm not saying that, that God made me not make the team or made me play better the tryouts or anything like that, but I do truly believe that this is the huge turning point in my life. I knew that God was calling me out of my lukewarm, lukewarm faith, and I decided that I was going to stop running from God like the prodigal son. And instead, I was going to start taking my faith seriously again. It was almost like I, I had my faith on this shelf. And, like, idolatry was just, just crept in. And, and basketball became my God. And, um, but I had forgot who I was in Christ. But the craziest thing was that God never stopped chasing me. All right, so we're going to go back to the text and read verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. So I love that part of the verse when he says he came to himself. Basically, he came to the end of himself. And that's just exactly what happens when we realize that sin is not worth it. The prodigal son completely lost who he was. He longed to eat with pigs, and it's just what sin does to us. It makes us forget who we are in Christ. So the younger son finds himself in this position where he wants to go back to his father and, and confess what he's done and, and apologize to the father. So we can read verses 18 and 19. 
I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sins against him. He makes up this whole apology, and he's set to, to tell his father, Dad, I'll just be your servant. Father, I'll work for no pay, and by the way, I've deemed myself no longer to be worthy to be your son. But let's see his response in, in verse 20 and 21. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be your son. So I don't think there's a cooler image than Jesus sprinting after us, sprinting after us, embracing us, picking us up, kissing us. And the, but the father pretty much ignores his apology. He doesn't care what he's done. The son has come home. That's all he cares about. And as Christians, do we not do this all the time? We decide that, dang, I don't really know if this Jesus thing is worth it. I'm going to go do my own thing. You know, God, you haven't really been coming through for me. God, I don't really feel you lately. God, I'm just going to go do my own thing. But we all know that that is literally the worst thing that we can do. When we try to do things on our own, that's when stuff hits the fan. We cannot survive on our own. We were made to have a relationship with Jesus. We were made to know God but we still try to run anyways. And when it doesn't pan out and we realize that life, with, uh, a life filled with sin isn't true freedom and that sin just doesn't satisfy, we decide that it's time to run back to God, which is exactly what God wants and he's waiting for us with open arms. But just like the younger son, we, we think we have to come up with this shaming apology where we explain to God how we're not worthy to be his son or daughter anymore. We explain how we, we're such a mess up and we don't deserve his love. But every time, God's just sitting there like, I have loved you from the beginning, and I'll never stop loving you. There's nothing we can do that Jesus won't forgive. Once we are sons and daughters of the one true king, we cannot out God's grace. His grace goes on forever. We don't have to come to God with this big, elaborate plan where we think we have to earn back his love, because we, we can't do that. We don't have to, there's nothing we can do to impress him. He never stops loving us when we are in him. So let's read verses 22 through 24. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So the father, we see the father throws a party, brings out the best robe, brings out the best ring, Brings out the stake. I mean, this is like scandalous grace that we see right here. This son took his inheritance early, moved to a faraway country, squandered his property, lived recklessly, spent his money loosely, went broke, and to top it all off, he longed to eat with pigs. But this gracious father does not care about what he's done. He just wants to celebrate that the son has come home. And that's exactly what our heavenly father is all about. He has grace on top of grace. He doesn't care what we've done. We don't have to clean ourselves up to come back to him because we can't. We can't clean ourselves up. We don't have that type of power. He just wants us to come home. And when we do come home, there's a heavenly party awaiting us. For once we were dead in our sin, but when we come back home, God raises us back to life. So now we're going to read these last seven verses. I'll know they're not part of the main point. They're still important. So let's read verses 25 through 32. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, What what are these things what are these things about? 
And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So to fully understand this, we have to remember who Jesus is telling these three parables to. Um, and if you do remember, he was, he's telling these parables to the scribes and the Pharisees. See, this older brother in the story is exactly like the Pharisee. The Pharisees, just like the older brother, is jealous of the grace that his father has extended to the younger brother after all his screw-ups and all the things that he's done. The Pharisees and scribes likewise are wondering why Jesus is even in the presence of these tax collectors and sinners. And if we're not careful, we too can end up having the same mindset as the Pharisees and the, and the, and the older brother. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's when we see someone at church and we know what they've done that weekend and we're like, what are they doing here? They don't deserve to be here. Or maybe we're at school and we hear somebody talking about church and we're like, we, I know what you do outside of school. Like, I know what you do on the weekends. And we just can't believe that they're here or, or that they even have the audacity to come 100 feet within this place. But we have to remember the character of the God that we serve. Everyone gets a seat at the table. No one has gone too far. In Mark chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus says, I came to call the righteous. I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 12, Jesus says, Healthy people don't need a, a doctor. Sick people do. We are all broken people. None of us are righteous before the Lord, but that's the reason Jesus died for us, so that we could be forgiven. So just to wrap all this up, I love this quote from John Piper. When sinners turn from their sin and come home to God, God is glad. It's so simple, yet so many of us miss it. God isn't angry at you. Once we are truly saved, there's absolutely nothing we can do to be separated from God. Romans 8, verses 38 and 39 say, Paul writes, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as believers, we have to preach that over ourselves every day. We've got to realize that that condemnation that we feel isn't from God. God does not condemn us. We've got to realize the difference between condemnation and conviction. Condemnation is when someone's like, you're not good enough, you don't deserve grace. But conviction is what brings us closer to God. Condemnation is from the enemy, but conviction leads us to repent. 